0: PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. Eclipse is a comprehensive all-in-one system that handles your billing, scheduling, and clinical documentation. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462.
1: This whole idea of self-efficacy, whether or not an individual believes that they can exercise successfully and whether or not it's going to give them a benefit, is huge.
2: We don't challenge them enough. We're underdosing them. They're doing chair exercises when they're out in the community walking around. If their doctor
0: hasn't told them that exercise is something they should engage in, they tend to not think it's important or not value it.
3: Welcome to this PTJ Discussion Podcast, Barriers to Exercise in People with Parkinson Disease. In this discussion, Dr. Terry Ellis, the lead author of a multicenter study on this topic, and Dr. Jennifer Brock analyze the results of the study and discuss approaches to enabling people to exercise over the course of a degenerative disease. And now, here is our moderator, PTJ Editorial Board Member, Dr. Kathy Gilbody.
1: Welcome to this podcast, which will focus on discussing a really interesting article that was recently published in Physical Therapy, entitled Barriers to Exercise in People with Parkinson's Disease. Authors on this article are Terry Ellis, Jennifer Boudreau, Tammy DeAngelis, Lisa Brown, Jim Cavanaugh, Gammon Earhart, Matt Ford, Bo Foreman, and Lee Dibble. I'm delighted that two colleagues are able to join us in this discussion. First, the lead author on this article, Dr. Terry Ellis who is the director at the Center for Neurorehabilitation in the Department of Physical Therapy at Sargent College of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences at Boston University. Carrie, thanks for joining us today.
0: Thank you, Kathy. I'm happy to be here.
1: Also with us is Dr. Jennifer Brock, associate professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Pittsburgh. Hi, Jan, and welcome.
2: Thanks, Kathy. I'm happy to be here as well.
1: Now, I thought that this article brought forward many considerations that directly impact clinical practice in terms of adherence to exercise. So, what I'd like to suggest is that we start our discussion by asking Terry to give us an overview of the study and also an explanation of what led she and her co-investigators to study barriers to exercise in this particular population.
0: Okay, so as a physical therapist in clinical practice as well as someone who does research, we're sort of always struggling with how to keep people exercising over the long term, particularly people with a chronic progressive disease. We all know that it's important for them to not only engage in exercise, but to be able to sustain it over the long term. So we wanted to learn more about the difference between those people who exercise and those people who don't exercise so that we could understand more about those barriers with the idea that we could address some of these barriers in clinical practice. In this study, we had a sample of 260 people with Parkinson's disease, and the sample had a mean age of about 68, and they had mild to moderate Parkinson's disease. We separated the sample into people who exercised and people who didn't exercise, and we determined this using the readiness to exercise scale. People were considered exercisers if they engaged in exercise at least three days a week for 20 minutes over a six-month period or more. And we validated these findings using the PACE, which is a physical activity scale for the elderly, and a step activity monitor. What we found in our study was that there were three barriers that were retained in our multivariate regression model. And the three key barriers that separated the exercises from the non-exercises were the following three things, low-outcome expectation, lack of time to exercise, and fear of falling. So what we concluded in our study was that low-outcome expectation of exercise, lack of time to exercise, and fear of falling appear to be important perceived barriers to engaging in exercise among community-dwelling people with Parkinson's disease.
1: Great. Thanks, Terry. Jen, would you like to ask a question or a comment? Sure, Kathy.
2: Carrie, I really enjoyed reading your article. Found it quite fascinating, but I do have a couple questions that I was hoping that maybe you could clarify for me. Sure. The methods were I thought excellent, and your rationale for stratifying your analyses based on gender, age, and disease stage were very well explained in the introduction, but what I found interesting was that when you examined the differences in your demographic characteristics between your exercisers and your non-exercisers, there were two variables in particular that differed between the groups. One was depression and the other was duration of disease. So first about the depression, Do you think that since the non-exercisers had a higher level of reported depression on your depression scale, that that might actually impact their barriers to exercise?
0: That's a great question, Jen. When we look at our actual scores related to depression, in both groups, the scores were considered subclinical. So, in other words, although the non-exercisers scored a little higher, meaning they had worse depression, their scores were still in the normal range. However, if you look at the standard deviation, it's a bit large suggesting that there's probably some people in that non-exercise group that were in the sort of mild depression group. So there is a potential that it could be a factor. However, one of the barriers that we included in our model that was part of this test that we use was a statement saying that it is difficult to exercise if I feel depressed and that variable did not stay in our multivariate model, suggesting that it was not a significant factor. You know, depression is very common in people with Parkinson's disease and is often underdiagnosed and is something that's modifiable with pharmacological treatment.
2: And possibly even exercise.
0: Yeah, and possibly exercise. (laughs) You're right. You're right.
2: So the other thing I was interested in is the disease duration. I know you had stratified by the Hohen and Yar score. And I'm wondering if the disease duration might represent something slightly different in that the longer the person has been diagnosed or has been dealing with the disorder, that maybe they're starting to become more discouraged or have lower expectations on their outcomes. Was there any thought to stratify the analysis by disease duration?
0: Yeah, we didn't do that here, but I think it's a good suggestion. I also think because we used the Hohn and Yara stages, it's a very crude measure when we looked at disease severity. And had we used something like the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale, we might have seen a bigger difference between the groups. But I do think there could be a difference in how people think about exercise and what their outcome expectation might be over time. That's a great point.
2: So the other thing that I thought was really interesting is the non-exercise group had a fair number of steps, 7,000 steps. And that seems like quite a lot of steps. And the other point as well is that A low percentage of your sample was non-exercisers. So how well do you think your population represents the population of community-dwelling
0: persons with Parkinson's disease? Mm -hmm. And -hmm. could
2: that impact the barriers?
0: Yeah, I think this is a great question, a huge point. I think because we do exercise trials here and when we recruit subjects, the people who want to be in the study and they're the first at the door are the people that are already exercising. And you know, because we're known for that, and that's what people come here for, we're much more likely to attract an already active sample. And so I think this is true of many of the studies that are done in exercise in general, whether it's people with Parkinson's disease or not. So I do think that this was a very active group. So that being said, do these results generalize? Do we know if these same barriers would emerge? If the group was more sedentary, you know, we don't know the answer to that. Unfortunately, that's the difficult crowd to attract into a study. You know, people that are sedentary and people who don't necessarily want to come out and go to a clinical site.
2: The people who need our help the most and are the least active are the hardest to get in to
0: study. Absolutely. I think they could benefit the most. They need the most attention. Exactly. That's a big issue.
1: So I wanted to ask a question as well. In your introduction, you mentioned that access to exercise and knowledge of exercise and cost are some other barriers that have been cited in the past. And I wondered if those items were included in this study, if they were assessed for this population.
0: Yeah, that's a great question. And Because when we use a standardized barriers scale to conduct this study, Although that allows us to compare our results to other studies and to use a standardized validated measure, it prevents us from looking more broadly. And so we know that these 13 items that we entered into our model are just possible barriers, but there are certainly potentially many others that we didn't look at, and those might include environmental barriers or barriers related to financial concerns. So there are certainly other things that could play a role, but I do think that the things that we found here that emerged as barriers are real barriers. You know, it's amazing to me that most people with Parkinson's who see a physician, most of the time the physician has not recommended exercise as part of the standard management of Parkinson's disease despite the overwhelming evidence that exercise is beneficial in improving function and quality of life for people with Parkinson's disease. So if their doctor hasn't told them that exercise is something they should engage in, they tend to not think it's important or not value it or not think that maybe they could benefit as much from it as they actually could. I think it tempers their expectation.
1: I totally agree with you. You know, I'm in an outpatient hospital-based practice now and my caseload is patients with neurologic problems and so they're almost all ambulatory and I treat patients with Parkinson's disease as well as a variety of other conditions and I think that it's a real challenge even the patients who do get in the door have varying degrees of expectation. And I think that one of the real challenges is also with that group of patients who do make it in the door is then how to assist them when their episode of care is done.
0: There's the key. That's the key right there. Yeah. (laughs) I totally agree with you.
1: So maybe we can brainstorm for a little bit any realistic ways that we can think about the barriers that have been identified in Terry's study or how to encourage patients to continue and engage even if they have some of those barriers. And if there's anything specific that people have tried that they found to be somewhat helpful.
2: I'd like to try to answer that. This is Jen again. I think one of the points that Terry made was really interesting in that we often do not recognize the importance of the physician's input. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't primarily work and treat patients with Parkinson's disease. My area is looking at health and wellness and community-dwelling older adults and trying to get them to engage in exercise. And one of the things that has been coming out in the literature, but also I've seen in the research studies that I've been doing, is that older adults, when we approach them to participate in our studies of exercise, they'll say, I need to check with my physician first, or I want to get my physician's opinion. And there's evidence out there that if the physician writes a prescription for exercise, on almost like a prescription pad saying we want you to, you know, walk two to three days a week or three to five days a week. That the older adults more likely to do it. So you wonder if physicians, they're writing prescriptions for other medications, why couldn't they be writing a prescription to encourage exercise or physical activity of some sort?
0: I think that's a great idea.
2: It may work. And then the other thing is we're trying to develop some health and wellness programs of group exercise classes. One of the things that we have found is that many of the programs out there for older adults actually sell the older adult short. We don't challenge them enough. We're underdosing them. They're doing chair exercises when they're out in the community walking around. So I think there is a real need for people to be thinking about some of these group exercise programs for older adults and making them more challenging so that when the patient is finished with their episode of care and physical therapy, that they have something that they can transition to. And not only that that program's in place, but there is that connection between the clinician and the person out in the community doing the wellness.
0: Yeah, I think those are great suggestions, Jen. This is just such a huge issue in our practice. I think that the typical way that we manage people with chronic progressive diseases is just not good enough. We generally see them in the middle to later stages of the disease more often than the beginning, when they already have developed problems and we discharge them with a home exercise program and many times without any follow-up and they're left to their own to perform an exercise program that is static in nature, isn't modified, doesn't change, doesn't adapt to meet their needs over time and they stop doing it. You know, we should have more of a secondary prevention model where we see people when they're diagnosed early on. And what's amazing to me is that I hear physicians say, well, I don't need to send them to you early because, you know, they're not having any issues yet. Well, wouldn't that be great? We might actually take a prevention approach and one of the things I say to them is you might not think they have any issues yet, but actually we do something like the six-minute walk test and they are in fact walking more slowly than you would expect someone at their age to walk. Without Parkinson's disease. So we do pick up things early on and we could address these things early when they're most modifiable. Right. And then we would give somebody an exercise program at that point and then I think we should have them come back. Right? And here in our practice we have people come back on a regular basis and we have more of a model where we follow them over the course of the disease. So just like they follow their neurologist over the course of the disease to manage their Parkinson's symptoms and to modify their medicines, we educate them in the same way. Well, you can come here to us and we're going to follow you over the course of the disease to help you with your physical function and your day-to-day mobility to make sure that we can optimize that over the course of time. And
2: Cheering. It almost sounds like you're using booster sessions.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: I don't know if people are familiar with that term that you do your original episode of care and then periodically down the line you bring them in and do it. A... So do you think that's the way that clinicians typically think or are we so ingrained in three times a week for a month instead of trying to spread the visits out over a longer period of time?
0: I think that most physical therapists would agree philosophically that this is what we should be doing and this is what they want to be doing and then I think there are barriers in our system that make it difficult for us to operate like that. So, I think it's incredibly important to have a patient-centered approach and to engage with the patient about what are you most likely to do, like what do you like doing, what do you enjoy and what are the things that get in the way. What are the things that prevent you from sticking to an exercise program over time? Or what could we do to help you maximize the benefit? And people can pretty easily tell you what they like, what gets in the way, how come they didn't do it before, what made them stop in the past, and to try to work through and problem solve those things together. You know, that's a very patient-centered approach and something that we could do more of in the short time that we're with patients.
2: This is Jen, and I agree completely, and I don't know if it's just as I get older in practice. Sometimes I tend to do things less by the book, but when you think about it, you can have the ideal program that addresses every one of their needs, or you could have a less ideal program that they're going to do. So if you have this ideal program that they're not going to do, what's the purpose? It's not ideal. What's the purpose of having that program if they're not going to do it? So I agree fully and I think all the exercise literature will tell you that enjoyment, finding something that the person likes is key, especially for long-term adherence.
1: Yeah, we do a standardized intake in our clinic and one of the questions that we do at that initial history is what's your current activity and exercise level and we get into the specifics and then other things that you used to do that you no longer do. And I find that question really helpful. It sort of starts the tick right away. Oh, this is somebody that used to run the treadmill. So maybe running a treadmill is not the goal, but maybe walking on one, holding on to start, maybe that is a goal. I think you can get a lot of hints early on that can start to get your thoughts organized.
2: I think that's really key for us as physical therapists because if they stopped an activity because of their disease, who better than a physical therapist to teach them how to modify the activity so that they can maybe start doing
1: it again? You know, I think this whole idea of self-efficacy, whether or not an individual believes that they can exercise successfully and whether or not it's going to give them a benefit is huge and honestly, I think we're just starting to become more insightful about this in our profession.
0: I think the issue of self-efficacy, it's success breeds success. You know, so people with this chronic progressive disease and with other diseases need to experience success in order to realize that they can do it. They can exercise successfully. The other issue I just wanted to raise is that we all have barriers to exercise and even exercisers, right, have barriers to exercise. And this is one of the things I brought up in the discussion. It's not that people that exercise have no barriers. I think that maybe they have fewer barriers and maybe the barriers aren't as significant, but it could also be that the exercisers have greater self-efficacy. They're more confident in their ability to overcome barriers.
1: Right. So at this point, I'm going to actually point out that our time is coming close to an end and ask each of you if there are any final or summary comments that you would like to make.
0: So I guess I would just like to say that I think that people with Parkinson's disease have a lot of potential and they do have the potential to really benefit from exercise. And we know that continuous exercise is critical in order to optimize the benefit from exercise. I think that as physical therapists, we could think about spending more time in our sessions with people to try to address the issues of self-efficacy and to try to explore the individual barriers that might prevent somebody with Parkinson's from engaging over the long term and try to reduce those barriers and try to set specific goals and to follow up with people over time instead of discharging them to do things independently, although there's some element to that, it would be great to be able to shift our model a bit and to follow people more over the course of the disease, similar to the way that physicians follow patients for medical management over the course of the disease.
2: Terry, I think that was a great summary. I would just like to add, I was really pleased to see this article, just for the fact that I think oftentimes as therapists, we get focused on trying to work on the impairments, the strength, the range of motion, the balance, or even functional limitations, but I like the idea of getting the patients on a program that they can continue throughout their life and not just something that ends when their physical therapy ends.
1: Great. Thanks, you guys. I think that this article offers us some real insight. I think one of the things that I'll look forward to in the future is some further work that looks at some intervention strategies that physical therapists maybe apply systematically to try and improve self-efficacy in this and other populations, and which of the approaches that we've evolved to or thought about or heard about are the ones that are going to be more successful for more individuals versus some that perhaps might be less successful. So I look forward to further work in this area, and thank you so much, both of you, for taking the time to join us in this conversation.
0: Thank you for having us, Kathy. It was great. I enjoyed it very much.
1: Thank you.
3: Send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Thanks for listening i